This Torah 101 podcast is dedicated in the merit of the complete and speedy recovery of Ariel Ben Yosef HaKohen. He is going into surgery today, the day that this podcast is being released. May he merit a complete refuah shalema, a complete and total recovery with no lingering effects. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. We have come a long way in our understanding of Messiah. We study about the general concept of Messiah, what's it like, what the Messianic era is like, how the world changes, how it stays the same, and all the various implications of Messiah. We talked a lot about the elements of Messiah, the mechanisms of Messiah, the various different variables, factors that are present in the Messianic time that influence the world, that impact the world, that change the world in such significant and seismic ways. Today, I want to focus on a few different points about the Messianic time, and specifically on the conditions in which Messiah will come. And this is going to assemble some of the ideas that we've talked about already We're going to add some new ideas to the cauldron, and it's going to bring into clear focus, I think, some of the paths that we have before us and some of the very stark consequences thereof. And again, our objective is to understand the subject of Messiah, which is the current principle of faith that we are working through. As you know, there are 13 principles of faith that Rambam codifies the Messiah is principle number 12, and we're trying to understand it as thoroughly as possible, and today's discussion will broaden and expand our understanding of Messiah and what it looks like. We're going to start with the idea of the inevitability of Messiah. So we talk about Messiah, this is something in the future that's going to happen. The sources are completely in agreement that Messiah is not a possibility, but an inevitability. It's something that will definitely happen. It's baked, as we shall see, into the fabric of creation. One of the preconditions of creation is that Messiah will come. There is no circumstance in which Messiah does not come. And we know the end point of that. That is the year 6,000, and we'll talk more about that later on in our studies. Now, the inevitability, the principle of the inevitability of Messiah is found in all the sources. So, you begin, of course, with Rama himself. Rama himself, in his codification of the 13 principles, the way he defines Messiah is that the days of Messiah to believe and to make true that it will come, and it won't delay. And if it tarries, then you wait for Messiah. It may come sooner. It may come later. But Messiah will definitely happen. Messiah will definitely come. Messiah is inevitable. Now, in his Mishnah Torah, in chapter 11 of the Laws of Kings that we read several episodes ago, he tells us at the very beginning of the chapter, HaMelech HaMashiach, King Messiah, will in the future arise and restore the Davidic monarchy to the way it was in the past. 
And he will build the temple and gather in the Jews from their exile. And all the laws will be restored the way they were initially. Sacrifices, Shemitah, Yovel, all the laws of the Torah will be fulfilled. Of course, today, absent the temple, there are enormous parts of the Torah that we just cannot fulfill. All that will be restored with Messiah. But again, the way he presents it, this is not a possibility. May happen, maybe not. It is inevitable. In the future, Messiah will arise and restore all these things, the temple, the monarchy, the laws, etc. Now, we don't even need the Rambam. We have the verses in the Torah talk about Messiah. And all those verses that forecast the arrival of Messiah and the Messianic age, they all reinforce this principle, both directly and indirectly, that Messiah is inevitable. So, for example, we have at the end of Leviticus and towards the middle, towards the end, I guess, of Devarim, we have two portions in the Torah known as the admonishment, the blessings and the curses. If you do good, you'll have all this incredible blessing. And if not, you'll have this awful, horrific, non-ending suffering and torment. And the commentaries note, specifically the Rebbein of Achaya, amongst others, that the full fulfillment of these blessings have not yet occurred in a complete fashion, and they will be fulfilled in the time of the Messiah. And of course, we know that no word of the Torah is for naught. And thus, we have at least indirect evidence by the fact that there is this prophecy foretelling of this incredible time, we have indirect evidence that Messiah is inevitable. Now, Rambam also told us that the blessings of Bilam in the book of Numbers, chapter 24, they are a reference to Messiah. And we know that if the Torah prophesizes about something positive, if God promises something positive, it will necessarily happen. A negative prophecy, on the other hand, it's a threat. It can be annulled, it can be sidestepped, but a positive prophecy will be fulfilled. So if the Torah prophesizes about Messiah, it is inevitable. In Devarim chapter 30, Deuteronomy, we spoke about these verses at length, the ingathering of the exiles, the reestablishment of Jewish hegemony in the land, the circumcision of the heart, the various different realms of repentance. And again, these are not presented as possibilities, but as inevitabilities, they will certainly happen. Moreover, it's evident in many other sources that Messiah is inevitable, and that the current state of the world, where the Almighty, His existence, His power, His dominion, where that is shrouded behind a veneer of nature. In this world, heresy is is feasible. It's tolerable. Why? Because God is obscured. This status of the world is temporary. Not, not only is it temporary, but it's actually the anomaly. 
the world as it exists today, after the sin of Adam, it's actually the outlier. It's the anomalous outlier, and it's not going to endure forever. And there will come a point in time, we call that Messiah, where the world will be restored to its more natural state. And that's the state wherein the existence and dominion of God is indisputable. The world of Messiah. It's the world in which, by Yom HaHu on that day, Yehiyah Hashem Echad, God will be one and his name will be one. There will be universality in recognition of and submission to God. And that world where things get restored to normalcy, that world is inevitable. Now, this is a hard idea for us to wrap our heads around. It's a little bit mind-bending because we assume that the world that we are in, this is the only one that we've known, and this is normal. But the sources are, again, complete agreement about this, that this world is not normal. This is the outlier. It's, in fact, compared to in many sources, like the Talmud, Bamatsiya 83, ample verses in Scripture. This world, in its current state, where there's so much confusion and obfuscation of the truth, this world is comparable to nighttime. And just as nighttime, it's a time of temporary darkness, and that's all transformed and altered and illuminated by daybreak, so too, this dark world where the presence, the power of God is obscured, this is a temporary phenomenon. And a phenomenon like the arrival of the sun at daybreak, it's going to be overturned in the times of Messiah. Kate's Psalm Lachoshech. This is a verse in Job chapter 28. There is an end to darkness. This world as it exists, where there's so much darkness, so much confusion, and again, the only truth of the world is obscured, there's an end point for it. There's a Kate's. There's an end point to it. The Almighty allowed a certain amount of time for the world to exist, to be enveloped and enshrouded in darkness. And the one only truth is obscured. God is obscured. There is spiritual opacity in the world. The Sahara, the foreign God, the false God, he reigns. He usurped, so to speak, the throne of God. That world... There's an end point to it. It has a shelf life. God is not going to tolerate the usurpation of his throne forever. There's an end point to the darkness. Now, it should come as no surprise that our sages compare Messiah to the sun. Why? Because Messiah himself, he's like the tip of the spear that pierces and that penetrates this darkness and illuminates the entire world. Be'archa nire'or, in your light we shall see light. Psalms 36 says the Midrash, this is the light of Messiah. Our world, it's compared to darkness. And it's temporary, and it's going to change with Messiah. The world as it is currently oriented, where God is hidden, and where the false God, the Yetzirah, reigns, this is the anomaly, this is unnatural, this is darkness, this is nighttime, and Messiah. 
the proverbial sun, the proverbial daybreak will come and will punctuate this darkness with the brilliance of a thousand suns. And that light will illuminate every corner of the world and the heart and soul of every person. And that's the world of Messiah. And in that world, in that perfected, fixed world, what we say on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in our prayers, that will be fulfilled. Vieda kol pa'ul. And every creation will know that God created it. And everything that was formed will know that God formed it. And everyone that has a soul will declare God. Almighty God, the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, he is the Melech, the king, Umalchuso and his kingdom, Bakol Mashallah, rules all. This will happen. Daybreak is inevitable. Now, this is hinted to in the existential and cosmic conflict between Jacob and Esav. Of course, we know that Esav was born first. He had a head start. But at the very end, Jacob seizes, grasps the ankle. And Rashi, of course, tells us in Parshas Toldos that this is symbolic of this conflict. Darkness will reign first. Asaph will have a head start. First, it will be nighttime. Vayi Erev, Vayi Voker. If you look at how Genesis is structured, it always starts with nighttime. It was night, and then it was morning. It's the term of Asav, and then it will be the term of Jacob. But Messiah is inevitable. Now, we spoke last time about the idea of repentance and its central positioning in the story of Messiah. When we say Messiah will definitely come, we're also saying that we will definitely repent either by choice or by force. If we don't repent, well, then God will appoint a king as treacherous as Haman, and he will compel us to repent, and via that forced repentance, Messiah will come. So Messiah is inevitable. Repentance is inevitable. Messiah will definitely come. Now, it's fascinating that the place in the Torah where Rambam points us to the arrival of Messiah. It's in the blessings of Bilam, who was the non-Jewish prophet. Isn't that an odd place to find the forecasting of Messiah? Bilam, he sets out to go curse the Jewish people. He's hired by Balak, who's worried about this juggernaut, the Jewish nation. And Bilam is forced to bless them. He's not able to curse them. And he has four series of blessings. And in one of them, he talks about Messiah. A star will emerge from Jacob, etc., etc. Why is the prophesying in the Torah about Messiah, why is that featured? Why is that courtesy of Bilam. So I read an interesting theory that you don't need the mosaic corpus of the Torah 
to know that Messiah will happen. It is so fundamental to the rules of the world. It's so built in to the fabric of creation. You don't need Moshe and the revelation that we received to know about it. It is so fundamental. It's so essential to the world. Even Bilaam, the non-Jewish prophet, he is able to reveal that to us. The Midrash finds a representation of Messiah in the second verse in the whole Torah. The the land was empty and desolate and darkness. And the Spirit of God was hovering. What's that Spirit of God? That is the description we find in Isaiah about Messiah. At the very beginning of creation, Messiah is already planned. It's part of the reality. It's completely inextricably tied to the existence of this world. And even Bilaam, he could talk to us about that. We don't need Moshe for this. Again, this idea that Messiah is inevitable. And again, there's no disagreement. We saw this in Rambam. We saw this in Ramchal. The verses, the Midrash, the Talmud, everyone agrees it's a very well-established, incontrovertible principle. And that is Messiah is not a possibility. It is, in fact, an inevitability. Now, this raises a problem. If something is inevitable, it's definitely going to happen. Well, then by definition, it's not reliant on free will. Humans, we're fickle. We make good choices. We make bad choices. Society sometimes veers in a good way and sometimes it slides in the opposite direction. If something is bound to happen, it cannot be correlated to human fallible free will. Yet we have seen ample evidence that our choices impact Messiah. If we repent, we bring Messiah. Our actions impact the arrival of Messiah. That memorable story that we quoted, and I hope we'll revisit, the great sage meets Elijah, when's Messiah coming? Go ask him yourself. He goes to the outskirts of Rome and he sees amongst uh, all the all the lepers of Rome, he sees one person who's tying and untying the bandages. We talk about that. When are you coming? Today. Great. I'm going to prepare. Messiah doesn't show. And the great sage tells Elijah, well, Messiah's a liar. He says, no, 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 you left too early. Today, Hayom, imbikolo tishmo. Today, Messiah will come if you repent. The Talmud we mentioned a few episodes ago, Talmud tells us that if a nation observes two Shabbases completely, well, then Messiah will arrive instantaneously. So we see again, many sources tell us that our actions, they are the levers that beget Messiah. Apparently, Messiah hinges on free will. So this seems like an irreconcilable contradiction. If something is guaranteed to happen, it cannot be linked to free will. If something is inevitable, it must be decoupled from free will. 
So how can Messiah be both correlated and uncorrelated to free will? How can Messiah be both inevitable and contingent on our behavior? What an interesting paradox. Messiah is dependent on our behavior and independent on our behavior. We know our behavior, it's ours. The Almighty, so to speak, withdraws and allows us to make decisions. We get to choose. We get to decide. We have free reign to do what we wish. Of course, we can make the correct choices and effectuate Messiah. But we can also make poor choices in this world, in this darkness, in this nighttime. We can repudiate God. We can reject faith. We can sink further into the morass, into the quagmire of sin and spiritual degradation. All that is feasible in this world. Of course, that would be inadvisable, but it is within the realm of our choice. And if so, how can that coexist with the idea, well-established idea, that Messiah is inevitable? Now, this question, very interesting, I think, question, very central question, It's going to be very helpful in bringing us to a very central point in the entire subject. Both are true. Messiah is inevitable, and Messiah completely relies on our free will. Here's how that works. Messiah is going to come before the year 6,000. That is fixed. But what does that Messiah look like? That is up to us. Messiah will come. The darkness will end. The nighttime will be punctuated by the daybreak of Messiah. That's going to happen. But whether that happens in a very good way or in a very awful way, the nature of Messiah... That is up to us. Messiah is inevitable, but it is also path-dependent. There are many, many paths to Messiah, perhaps an infinite number of paths. They all lead to Messiah. But those paths are very different. We have a complete spectrum of paths to Messiah. And what Messiah looks like and what that experience is like and what emerges from the end of the path, it's all very, very dependent on the path that we took to get there. Messiah is fixed. It's inevitable. But the nature of the Messiah that we will get, that we will end up with, is completely dependent on the particular path that we take to get there. So we have some examples of this idea already in what we studied in the past. So we talked about Messiah and repentance. Repentance is a necessary component of Messiah. But there are various different ways to repent. 
There are diametrically opposite ways to repent. So we spoke about this again at length. Repentance is necessary for Messiah. And if there's no repentance, says Rabbi Eliezer, there's no Messiah. Comes along Rabbi Yoshua and says, well, there's more than one way to achieve repentance. One way or the other, there will be repentance. Either by us voluntarily returning to our source, or by God forcing the hand, appointing a Haman-like figure who will force us to repent. Messiah is inevitable. Repentance is inevitable. But it may be accompanied by a Haman-like figure. And that sort of Messiah is decidedly unpleasant. Yes, all paths lead to Messiah. All paths lead to repentance, which leads to Messiah. But some of those paths are much rosier than others. And some, in fact, contain a Haman-like figure. And that particular path to Messiah and that destination, it's not pleasant. And it's very, very different from what would result from a better path to take. This is a paradigm shift in our understanding of Messiah. Yes, it's inevitable. But it is also variable. And we have complete reign in determining Messiah. Not if Messiah will come or it won't come, but what type of Messiah will come. In the variability, in the types of Messiah that are feasible, that is where our free will lies. So this is the solution to our seemingly irreconcilable question. Messiah is inevitable, but it's also variable. And some potential versions of Messiah include the misery, the deep suffering, the unpleasantness of having a Haman-like king forcing us to repent. And that is in our hands. And this idea that we will elaborate upon, it's going to resolve a lot of questions that exist in the literature on Messiah. There's many sources that seem to be in direct conflict with each other. This is the core of the answer. Messiah is inevitable, but what that looks like is not determined. That is variable. There are many different paths to Messiah, and the experience of Messiah in each one of those paths is different. The destination is fixed, but we can choose the path. And that path determines what that destination looks and feels like. Now, I want to give some context to this idea. First, I want to quote some historical examples of this phenomenon. The nation, the Jewish nation, was destined to go down to Egypt. If you read chapter 15 of Genesis, in the what's known as the Covenant of the Parts, the Brisbane Absarim, God tells Abraham, Yodoa that we spoke about this, of course, in the past, 
You should surely know that your descendants will be foreigners in a foreign land, and they'll be enslaved, and they'll be tormented, and they'll be oppressed for 400 years, and then they will leave with great wealth, etc. This is a prophecy. It's predetermined. It is inevitable. Now, we know it actually happened. Jacob, with the long story, of course, much of Genesis is dedicated to this. Joseph is sold as a slave, and he ends up in Egypt, and he becomes the viceroy of Egypt in a very improbable fashion. And then there's the seven years of plenty, followed by the years of starvation, of famine. And the brothers come, and Joseph plays a whole series of apparent games with them. And eventually he reveals himself to his brothers, and he beckons Jacob to come. And Jacob descends to Egypt, the whole family. Jacob, with his children, 70 souls descend to Egypt, and thus the fulfillment of the prophecy to Abraham. Now, how did Jacob descend to Egypt? So the Torah tells us, Pharaoh sent wagons, chariots, to go bring Jacob down to Egypt. And when he was there, he had an audience with Pharaoh. And he was revered throughout the land. And you recall, perhaps, that this is in, I think it's in chapter 48 of Genesis. Before he's about to die, he implores and adjures Joseph to bury him in the land of his forefathers, to bring him back to Hebron, to the cave of the patriarchs. Why? So Rashi tells us, because he would have been deified in Egypt. Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years, and he was a celebrity. So Jacob did descend to Egypt, but how? He was brought down in a regal cavalcade. Not a bad way to go. The Talmud tells us in the book of Shabbos on page 89b that there was another possibility of how Jacob could have ended up in Egypt. And in fact, it would have been even more appropriate, says the Talmud, for Jacob to descend to Egypt in chains. It would have been more appropriate. God is sending you to exile, 400 years of exile, of enslavement, torment, and oppression. If it's exile, if it's enslavement, if it's torment, if it's oppression, what does that look like? Well, it looks like chains. And that's really the way that Jacob should have descended to Egypt. That's what the Talmud tells us. But he was meritorious. And therefore, he didn't change the reality, the destination, but the means, the experience, how it all went down. So again, this is a historical example of this principle. You can have a destination a prophecy that is inevitable. But the means through which it will come about and the experience of it and what it looks like and who is there to experience it, that can be variable. I'll give a second example. This might be a tad controversial. The Torah tells us that the Jewish people will reestablish hegemony over the land of Israel. We read it. We read it. Chapter 30 of Devarim of Deuteronomy. 
The Jews will come from all corners of the globe back to the land of their forefathers. Today, we live in a world where that prophecy has been fulfilled. Now, I don't want to get into the whole debate as to whether or not the state of Israel is connected or correlated to Messiah or not. I hope to talk about that sometime in the future in this series. But there's a very good argument to be made. I think, to me, it's very convincing that this prophecy was fulfilled. The Jews, after 1900 years in the Erzal, in every place in the globe, in the Middle East, in North Africa, all over Europe, of course, almost overnight, the nation coalesces back in the land. The prophecy has been fulfilled. What an incredible thing. But how did it get fulfilled? And this is where the controversy comes in. You can make a very good case that the way things played out were such that we had to lose six million of our brethren in order to get the state of Israel. Again, I think this is a, you can make an argument. This is not something which the sources talk about. But to me, just observing the situation, we know that the conditions were made possible by the events that preceded it. There was a horrific genocide that destroyed a third of this glorious nation in ways never before seen in all of human history. Communities that had existed and flourished for a thousand years were uprooted and destroyed. And the Jews had no choice but to go back to their land. And perhaps this experience elicited some sympathy or pity from the nations and they voted they voted to approve of a Jewish state in our homeland. When I see this, this is again, this is me talking. I don't want to pin the blame here on anyone else. But the way I read this is that the Torah made a promise and the promise was fulfilled. But there could have been a lot more pleasant ways to get that. And unfortunately, my sense is that the particular path that we chose was a very unpleasant one. We're happy with the result, but there's something really sad really unfortunate, there's a missed opportunity perhaps, that we could have gotten it in a much better fashion with a much lesser attrition rate, with less trauma, less pain, and less suffering. Did we need to endure this to get the prophecy? I don't know. But perhaps this is a second example of this principle that you could have a prophecy foretold the Torah and the way you experience it can be very variable. Messiah is inevitable. But we get to determine how it unfolds. So those are some historical examples. One of them, of course, featured in the Talmud, and one of them that we can perhaps speculate. But I want to give even more context to this idea. I want to try to understand it a little bit deeper. 
we said that there are many paths to Messiah. Maybe even an infinite number of paths. We can choose good, get Messiah. We can choose bad and also get Messiah. All directions, all paths result in Messiah. But it's even deeper than that. All paths cause Messiah. All paths precipitate Messiah. Let's explain. The Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin on page 98a says something very intriguing and very surprising. The son of David will arrive only in a generation that is entirely righteous or in a generation that's entirely wicked. This Talmud is something we really have to understand. I will give you the conditions that are needed for Messiah. What does the generation need to look like? It's got to be entirely righteous. That I get. Or entirely wicked. How can it set out the conditions that are needed for Messiah and present two options that are literal opposites of each other? This is a very important Talmud that we really need to understand. And please doubt we will get into it even further. But what's clear is that a generation that's entirely righteous, of course, we understand that. That is a, everyone's righteous. They're deserving of Messiah. It can cause Messiah. But here we see that when the generation is entirely wicked, it can also serve as a cause for Messiah. Well, how can that be? So we have one answer, that when we're so wicked, the Almighty sends us a Haman, and that forces us to become righteous. But there's another idea here. The Talmud elsewhere tells us that when the entire kingdom turns into heresy. Everything is heresy. When that happens, those are also ripe, propitious, fertile grounds, great conditions for Messiah. So there's another idea, and again, this idea is established in the Talmud, but it's also a very deep idea, a very subtle idea. Evil, by the Torah's definition, can only exist if it is marbleized by some degree of good. More precisely, the evil itself cannot exist on its own. It has to be nourished with some degree, with some modicum of good, with some modicum of truth. In the event that there is nary a scintilla of good in something bad, then it must necessarily collapse. So the classic example of this in the Torah is when the spies went to scout, went to reconnoiter the land. Moshe sends them the book of Numbers, and they come back and they have a libelous report. But how do they start their report? They say, we saw the land and behold, it is flowing with milk and honey. And look at its wonderful fruit. 
they start with something very positive. And Rashi over there quotes our sages, all falsehood that does not have some degree of truth in it cannot endure. Falsehood needs a small modicum of truth to subsist. That little modicum of truth, that is what gives it life. That's what animates it. And if you had falsehood completely absent, completely bereft of any truth, then it would collapse, it would implode like a house of cards. And therefore, if you were to eliminate the only speck of goodness that's animating the evil, the evil ceases to exist. Only when there is good amidst the evil can the evil endure. But what happens when the generation is entirely wicked? Or the kingdom has entirely been transformed to heresy? If there's no good, if there's no truth that's animating the evil, then the evil must collapse. And the Talmud brings a wonderful example of this. The laws of Tsaras, which is the skin ailment featured in the middle of the book of Leviticus. If someone has a spot, a splotch of discolored skin, that could be some sort of malady that is impure. And they're impure. But what happens if they're completely covered from head to toe with all of this white-like skin coloration? The Torah tells us, Kulo hafachlavan, if he is completely covered in saras, tahor hu. He is pure. Saras is impurity. If you have a little speck of it, well, you're impure. If you have a lot of it, you're also impure. If you're completely covered from head to toe with it, if it's just saras, the verse tells us then there is purity. And the idea, says the Talmud, is similar to why you would have Messiah in a generation that's entirely wicked. Because such a generation cannot endure. My grandfather, Blessed Memory, used to talk about the fall of communism in this light. He used to say, like, there was this incredible empire. that Everyone was terrified of this juggernaut. And overnight, it just collapsed. For 150 years, everyone was talking about this incredible ideal, this world, this utopian world, this idyllic world of no one has any property and communal ownership and everyone's well-fed and taken care of. And for 70 years, this incredible empire that spans much of uh, of Europe and Asia, but it has its tentacles everywhere. And then overnight, it just dies. And people can't believe how fast it went away. So what Rafael used to say is that socialism or communism, their ideal was equality and justice and everyone's treated equally. That is very lofty ideals that really are, 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 are noble ones, are just ones. 
are moral ones. In practice, it didn't exist. But that little speck of goodness, of truth, gave life to the entire massive empire. But once that was completely eliminated, everyone realized it was just a charade. It was just false. And there was no speck, no modicum of truth left over. It has to collapse like a house of cards. And this is what our sages are telling us. If there's complete impurity, well then, actually, those are great conditions for Messiah. From that can emerge Messiah. So we see a fascinating idea. Both good and bad generations, they can both serve as mechanisms for the elimination of evil and for the revelation of good for Messiah. Now this idea gets even more granular. Ramchal has an essay in his work, Da'as Tvunos, where he talks about every single day and every single choice. A good choice, a bad choice. Everything that happens in the world propels the world closer to Messiah. Because on a more microscopic level, every decision, or even if you break down every decision, it has some good components and bad components. And again, both good and bad are contributing towards the ultimate elimination of evil and revelation of good. And therefore, every day and every choice can actually bring about Messiah. And he presents this idea in the context of how the Almighty oversees the world. And he talks about how God orchestrates the world in such a way that both good and bad can contribute towards the end goal of creation. Someone does bad and they're motivated by bad. But God, in his unfathomable wisdom, he causes that the evil that was directed towards cause A ultimately should bring about the perfection of the world. Again, this is a more granular presentation of of this idea. Messiah is inevitable. Every day, every choice is this filtering of this path that we're choosing collectively. And the good choices bring us closer. And the bad choices also bring us closer. And thus on every day, we say it can come. Meaning that regardless of the behavior of that day, the good and the bad are both bringing us closer. Every day inches us closer to Messiah. Human life, the world, marches inexorably towards Messiah. And the choices, they are very important. The choices that we make are very critical because they determine what kind of path we're taking and what it's going to look like at the end. But all paths lead to Messiah. And this is why the commentaries note all the descriptions of Messiah in our prayers, in our sources, they're all active. Messiah is coming, we say. Messiah is riding on a donkey, Rochev al-Hamor. God is creating the light of Messiah. God is gathering in the Jews from the far 
flung dispersed corners of the world. In our prayer, we say, Bone Yerushalam. God is building Jerusalem. God is sprouting. Matzmiach Yeshua. Sprouting redemption. God is redeeming Israel. Go El Yisrael. Messiah is not a possibility. It is an inevitability. And it's happening right now as we speak. And it's happening regardless of the choices and the decisions that we make. But those choices are very critical. Yes, everything is propelling the world closer to Messiah, both the good and the bad, in ways that sometimes we cannot see, in ways that we can perhaps understand. We talked about some of the ways that that can actually work out. And some of them are beyond us because it's the Almighty and His infinite wisdom. Both the good and the bad are pushing us forward. But the critical point is that the type of Messiah that we will get is going to be determined by the particular path and the particular choices that we made to get there. Yes, there is a fixed endpoint, but the manner and the means and the type of that thing is variable. And the consequences of the path that we choose are very, very stark. In a whole host of ways, the path that we choose the path that we take to Messiah, it's going to drastically affect the nature of the Messiah that we get. What type of Messiah? What's the experience like? What's the timeline of Messiah? What is the speed in which the Messiah will arrive? What is the retention rate? What's the participation rate? The the temple's going to be rebuilt. Well, how will that look like? Elijah, what's his role? The miracles of Messiah, what's that all about? In each one of these areas and many more, the type of Messiah that we choose will affect the type of Messiah that we get. All that hinges on the type of Messiah that we embark upon. And that is the subject that we have to ponder next. The variability of Messiah and the incredible ways in which the type of path that we choose is going to be very different from the other paths that we potentially can choose. This is a little bit of a deeper point, but I think it's the natural progression in our study. Some very advanced ideas. But that's what we do here. We try to plumb the advanced ideas and try to understand as best as we can. I'm looking forward to your questions and your comments and your feedback, of course. My email address is rabbiwalbajima.com. This is great. We are now eight sessions into our study of Messiah, and I feel like we're getting close to the heart of the matter. And next time, please, God, we'll talk about the variability of Messiah in the many, many different areas and arenas of Messiah. It is a highly variable enterprise.